Hi, it's Phil here. I love learning, you know that. Having the opportunity to sit and learn from somebody who has such a breadth of knowledge about the way in which learning is occurring in the world and might be occurring in the world is for me a great way to spend time. I've really enjoyed the two opportunities I've had to share time with Santiago Rucón Gallardo beforehand. We're gonna spend some time, one more time together, learning about the way in which the Global South has been helping us to learn about how to do radical innovation in education. I'm excited, I can't wait, let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our series premium sponsor? Thanks, Adriano, of course. We are delighted to be partnering with the team at Open Parachute. If you want to teach mental health to your students, but you don't have time to become an expert, Open Parachute can help. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Hello, Santiago. How are you doing today? Doing very well, Phil. Very excited to be here with you. Thank you, sir. I'm Well, well I'm just bouncing up and down here. Let's dive into it. In our two previous conversations, there are a couple of things that came up that I want to sort of posit, and then I want to allow us to sort of shift our thinking to solutions to the challenge that's posed and to see whether we can source those in some of the work that's happening in the global south. Here goes. Everywhere I go in the world, teachers tell me they don't have enough time to do what it is they do. And they imagine if only they had more time and more resource so if only their classes were smaller and they had more time to work with their students and, 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 and. Now, it doesn't matter whether you go to a bush school with 100 kids on a dirt floor or a really posh school with 10 kids in a beautifully appointed classroom. Every teacher feels the same. I think there's a thing going on here which is about stress and the perception that if you give me more or if you take things away from me, I will be okay. I can get control again and I will be better. And yet, I don't think that's the answer. I think what you've been teaching me in this special series so far is, is it's that lovely metaphor from last time where we talked about V for Vendetta. It's the prison of our mind and our perception. It's not about how much time and resource we've got really. It's about what we do with that time and what we do with that resource to create the powerful, the, the conditions for powerful learning that will go along along the way. I really want to learn from you today about what's happening around the world with people who may have less, but are doing more with less around what it is they do. Am I, am I, am I under something here or am I just missing it completely? You are quite into something, yes. Careful, because I'm going to talk a lot then. <laughs> Excellent. Go for it, man. Dive in. Uh, uh, <laughs> of course, there's a feeling of not enough time. We all feel like time is scarce and we have so little of it. But, uh, you know, I haven't made the calculation, but teachers are the adults that are perhaps the adults that kids spend most of their wake time with. It's going to be thousands, hundreds of thousands of hours that our kids spend with teachers. It's not about looking for more time, using the same time, you know, waiting for the time to come for kids to engage in meaningful learning is a, is a very, you know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of hockey hope. It is not about needing more time, but about using the time differently, the, 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 the way you're saying, you know, the way you're saying it. There's so many hours that our teachers are spending with kids. And uh, the problem is that we have created a culture and a structure of schooling that, what it creates is scarcity. 
we have created a culture of scarcity, of scarcity of time, of scarcity of opportunities to engage one on one with kids, etc. In many ways, we induce the scarcity by assuming and expecting that teachers are solely responsible for all the kids in their classroom. And in a way they are, they have to keep them safe. They need to keep them somewhat engaged, doing their work, all those kind of things. But what about students as teachers? What about starting to capitalize on the knowledge and the expertise and willingness of our kids as teachers? This simple idea and the bigger ideas that we have been talking about in the past couple episodes about this, you know, learning as a practice of freedom and uh, education changes the social movement. Up to this point, it may feel like they're very nice theoretical elucubrations, right? Like uh, these, these crazy guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, exactly. Where's, where's, right? your, where's your evidence, uh, Santiago? Where think, is that's it? right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And uh, the good news is that actually the elucubration happened after learning about and being part of initiatives that are doing exactly this. Now, they're not happening in the global north. They're happening in the global south, in very unlikely places. Charles Leadbeater, with the support of the Wise Foundation, some uh, 10 years ago, I believe already, uh, was tasked with trying to map out 100 educational innovations around the globe, around the globe, mostly in the global south. And what he discovered, and one of his main findings is there's phenomenal innovation in education happening, and, and it's happening at a much faster rate. And the innovation is being way more powerful in emerging economies than it is in the developed world. And he was speculating and saying this might be so because in emerging economies, demand is great, the demand is huge, there's a lot of unmet demand, the needs are greatest. And conventional solutions are totally dysfunctional. <laughs> conventional solutions don't work. So it is the case that necessity is the mother of invention, that in, in context of more need and, and more demand, um, there is invention, innovation becomes almost an existential need. It is not a luxury. You need to do it to survive. And that's what's happening across the global south in many sectors, but in particular in education. I first came across this idea of educational change as a social movement when uh, Richard Elmore, my very dear professor mentor who just passed away very, uh, very unexpectedly two weeks ago, uh, came to Mexico to learn about something called the Learning Community Project or the Tutorial Networks. Uh, and he found himself suddenly 10 years ago in uh, December 2010 in uh, a remote rural community in the middle of nowhere where kids were sitting, you know, their single room school with a dusty patio, very worn structures, very shaky tables. The kids were teaching and learning with each other and, uh, and the teachers were around uh, supporting the projects of each of the kids, all those kind of things. As Richard was, you know, sitting with some students and asking them what they were doing, which is what he usually did uh, when he visited classrooms, which is something he did every, you know, at least one, one day a week in American classrooms uh, for, for many years. As he was looking around and asking questions to students, this young girl called Marie Cruz, a 13-year-old girl from the rural community of Santa Rosa in the state of Zacatecas, she came to him and said, 
hey, I would like to be your tutor. Would you let me be your tutor in geometry? <laughs> I love it. And, I love uh, it. I love it. Richard got taken aback. Uh, but once he kind of recovered from the shock of this young girl coming out of nowhere to say, you know, I want to be your tutor, uh, Marie Cruz came, you know, she offered a, uh, she presented a geometry problem that involved kind of calculating a shaded area that was, uh, uh, you know, formed with, with different circles. The first thing that grabbed Richard's attention was that Marie Cruz, well, first, you know, she said, look, we're going to start with a simple problem because I don't know how much you remember of the geometry you learned in school. So let's start with this simple one. But along the, along the way, what Richard noticed was that Marie Cruz was not interested at all in whether or not he got the right answer. What he would do is to ask him questions to understand how he was thinking about the problem. So he asked them to explain aloud what decisions he was making and why. Why was he doing this and not this? What, all those kind of things. So what he asked them to do was to explain his thinking as he was solving the problem. Uh, Richard later on has talked about this as one of the most intellectually intense experiences he's had. And look, he's a Harvard professor, a very well-known uh, academic, all those kind of things. He, at the end, you know, after 15 minutes or so, he found the answer to the, to the, to the problem and very proudly offered it to Marie Cruz. And uh, Marie Cruz with a smile said, well, yeah, this seems correct, but we're not done yet. Can you explain me what this is? What is this? What, is, what does this mean? And she pointed to the symbol of pi that Richard had been using many times to calculate the areas of the circle that were involved in this problem. And, you know, with certain degree of confidence, Richard said, well, you know, it's a number, 3.14 something. And with a bigger smile, Maricruz said, well, that is true, but that's not what I'm asking you. What does it mean? And why are you using it the way you're using it to calculate the area of a circle? So that moment, this old white man from one of the best universities of the world had to uh, tell this young brown-skinned girl from a rural community in Mexico, I don't know. And for the next 15 minutes or so, Maricruz, this girl guided him uh, through a translator, but guided him through a process of understanding the meaning of pi. For the first time in his life, understanding what it meant, understanding why, why it is that it's a constant number, regardless of the size of the circle, and understanding why it is that you use it the way you use it to calculate the area of a circle. Why you multiply pi times r squared, and that gives you, you know, that, that number tells you that the, the area of a circle. Back in, at, at home in, in Boston, Richard wrote, wrote, you know, produced a little note, little reflection note. And he was saying, I felt I was in the hands of an expert. I felt I was in the hands of an expert. Maricruz was not only uh, really good at geometry and you know, he, she knew her concepts and she knew how to learn and solve problems. She mastered a practice, she mastered a pedagogy. She knew to ask me questions that led him to identify the things that I did not understand, what where I was shaky, and to help me learn it for the first time, for the first time in my life. I felt I, I was in the hands of an expert. When Richard went back to Mexico, to, to Boston, I got an email from his wife, uh, Kirsten Olson, a very dear friend, who I've been thinking a lot about um, recently now that Richard has just passed. 
And uh, at the time, we didn't know each other. But she sent me an email saying, Santiago, my friend, Richard just came back from his trip to Mexico, showing me pictures of his trip with tears rolling down his cheeks. Richard, I had the pleasure of taking classes with him, of, uh, of taking some of his classes while I was doing my master's and later on my, my PhD at Harvard. Uh, and, he's, and he was one of the smartest people I've ever met, incredibly smart. I'd never seen him show emotion, especially cry. When he wrote this report after the visit, he was saying, you know, I spent thousands of hours of serving thousands of public uh, classrooms in America. And I don't remember the last time I heard the voice of a student. It's usually the teacher speaking over. And whenever a student dares to speak, they do it in such a low tone, as in fear of being reprimanded, that I cannot hear them. And here I am in a small rural community in the middle of nowhere, with this girl who looks me in the eye, who comes, who has the confidence to come look me in the eye and to say, hey, I want to be your teacher, and who knows she has something important to teach me. This is, this is the Learning Community Project. And this happened, I mean, this visit happened in the context of a much larger effort to liberate learning in the most remote communities across the country. This project, the Learning Community Project, started as a very small grassroots, small-scale project with a handful of schools in 2003. I was part of the team that first developed this model and worked with some schools to, to bring it to life. But relatively quickly, it started to spread like wildfire. It was parents talking to other parents saying, I don't know what's going on here, but my kid is not, not watching TV anymore. You know, they, they come to... They come to home to read books and to solve math problems. Teachers saying, I, you know, the kids are coming to, to me to ask me for the keys to the school so they can come earlier in the morning and stay in the afternoons or come in the weekends to continue reading and continue learning. So what started to happen is word of mouth. Uh, many more teachers wanted to start seeing this practice and learning it. And it started to spread uh, to, a, to a few dozen schools and then to a few hundred schools. While this grassroots expansion was happening, uh, one of the leaders of this initiative, a very good friend of mine, Dalila Lopez, uh, was invited to the Ministry of Education, to the Department of Innovation. And uh, she was able to bring in a lot of people from this team that had been kind of catalyzing this kind of change to design a policy that will, would create kind of the infrastructure, pretty much the social network infrastructure that would allow for this practice to spread further. The Learning Community Project, this policy in particular was called PEMBLE, the Program for the Improvement of Learning, spread to 9,000 schools across Mexico. And thanks to it, uh, the kids in the most marginalized communities, middle school children, the most marginalized communities in the country started to outperform, outperform very quickly their, most, their more privileged peers in more privileged schools. And they got, in the case of mathematics, to, to, to achieve at the level of private schools. These are kids in the most dire conditions, poverty, in many cases, not electricity, no running water, uh, a lot of social violence, a lot of stuff. And these guys, these, and with the least experienced teachers, and they started to outperform their peers and to achieve at levels of private schools, which in Mexico are the elite of the elite. Only 8% of kids go to private school. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one example. 
But as I started to learn more about and study more and connect more with leaders across the, the globe, I came across many other uh, examples like this. Richard Elmore was the first one to, when he witnessed this, uh, the Learning Community Project and this experience with Marie Cruz, and he had a chance to talk with leaders all over the system, the teachers, the school supervisors, the uh, state, um, um, the state authorities, the, the people at the national ministry. What he said is, this is not just a program or a practice, it is a social movement. That's how it works. Yes, yes, yes. He's the one who, who named it this way. The thing is, as I started to study and to write and to kind of document these kind of things more, I started to come across other examples. Escuela Nueva in Colombia is another phenomenal example uh, of, um, of a pedagogical model, very powerful learning model centered on the learner of, learning of children that was designed in the 70s for multi-grade schools. You know, in Latin America, we have yes. lots of schools that yes. have less teachers than uh, than would be needed for a regular school. So kids of different ages and grades are in the same in the same space with the same teacher. Escuela Nueva, again, a very kind of deeply student-centered pedagogy with lots of very powerful components. They have a reading corner, they have a science corner, they, they, they organize around a student government that's democratically elected and they run most of the school together with the teacher. They have a community service component. There's a lot of link between the school and community. They have, they have you know, they create gardens, they create businesses, they do a lot of, lot of stuff. But at the core of it is, student-centered pedagogy in, again, the most remote rural communities in the country. Escuela Nueva by the 90s had spread to 20,000 schools all over the country in Colombia. And by the end of the 90s, thanks to Escuela Nueva, kids, and uh, hang on to your hats, kids in rural schools were outperforming kids in urban schools. The kids in the margins of society were doing better we're better off with their education than kids in, in the cities, right? With all the privilege, with all the additional resources they had, et cetera. The way in which Escuela Nueva has spread, and, and it has become a kind of world-known, world-renowned innovation. You know, the, Vicky Colbert, the co-founder of Escuela Nueva, just was the, 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 the inaugural laureate for the Yidan Prize this kind of Nobel Prize of Education a few years ago. It's, it's one of the most successful innovations in the developing world. Uh, the World Bank considered it one of the most effective and successful innovations. Escuela Nueva has operated as a social movement as, as, uh, again. They're changing uh, the core of pedagogy and they're doing it at scale. You know, again, by creating collective capacity to sustain the war and to spread it to other schools. But there are other examples. There is activity-based learning. And again, another academic that now I'm very good friends with, we're working on a, on a paper together, studied uh, the activity-based learning work of uh, the, the Minister of Education in the southern state of Tamil Nadu in, uh, in India. Uh, again, a, a very kind of kids-oriented, children-focused model where kids have a lot of freedom of movement. There are no desks, no chairs. The kids actually have the little little individual carpet that they move along. They can move with freedom. They, they, they do their work at their own time. There are kids at different ages. This is a beautiful feature of the model, but they have a blackboard that extends across the circumference of the room and it's at the children's height. So everybody can stand, use the blackboard. 
and yeah, share their ideas yeah, with their yeah. colleagues, right? Santiago, I, I, yeah. I want to just pause for a moment because I know. Yes, I know good I point. I've been talking I, too much. No, no, it's, it's, it's all good, man. I could listen. I could listen to this sort of stuff for hours and hours, and 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 our game changers. I'm sure they're they're really appreciating the opportunity to hear these different case studies around about. I'm going to talk yeah. a little bit of jargon now. All right. So yeah. what you've yeah. just revealed is a series of case studies around peer-to-peer learning, yeah. around inquiry-based learning probably problem-based learning as well too yeah um composite classes and i have yeah. to say in australia composite classes are seen as a bad thing you know the idea that you might actually see different age group kids in with each other doing yeah. character apprenticeship pedagogy with each other would be considered appalling yeah. we, we, it's seen exercises in student government and greater democracy and i note malcolm gladwell on on, on, on the latest series of his revisionist history podcast series talks about uh, an exercise in South America. I think it was operating out of Peru, where they um, where they were they were learning about how leadership actually works, as mm-hmm. opposed and the difference between selecting students for leadership position and just allowing people to do it. And it's the yeah. doing more than the selection that you end up with. Right, all of this sort of stuff. All right, so there's a whole lot of technical stuff here, which challenges conventions of the custody base and the control-based and the sorting-based mechanism of industrial schooling that we talked about in the first episode. Yeah. yeah. All of them are coming from different parts of the world. All of them are being driven by social circumstances that say that we will dispense with convention because we need this. We need learning Sorry. that works. Earlier this week, I'm looking at a post on LinkedIn, like I do a lot these days because that's a great place to see what people are thinking and what posting. And there's a colleague of mine, I won't mention names here, who's put this thing up saying, okay, you want to do inquiry-based learning. It only suits people who are already experts. If you're a novice, very clearly, you need to do lots and lots of direct instruction. And then your reward will be inquiry-based learning. And I'm sitting there and thinking, hang on. So we're going to teach you how to be a trained monkey and jump through the hoops and get to the end of the process where you're an expert trained monkey and then say, be free. And you sit there <laughs> and you go, that's nuts. That's Here's it. my question. Here's my question. Daniel Kahneman, yep. Nobel Prize yep. winner for economics, but the great behavioral psychologist. He yep. says, yep. what you see is all there is. Mm. Freeing ourselves mm. of that limitation is so hard. So even, yeah. even with the best intentions in the world, when people, for example, and it was the same when we looked at gifted theory in the 1990s and 2000s, and I don't know what's happened to all of that sort of stuff because that, that was a thing for a while and we seem to have moved away from it. It was that notion of, well, look, if you're gifted, what we're going to do is we're going to give you all the normal work in a shorter period of time and your reward for doing all that work faster and under more pressure is more work yep. to do. Yep. So very quickly, what we do is we take all of these successful case studies and we reframe them within the same picture that we've always been seeing. You know, when John Hattie brought out the visible thinking stuff for the first time 10 years ago, and he tried with the best intentions to list, you know, 100 pedagogies and to say, this is effect size and so on and so on. Very quickly... People didn't take the, the essential learning, which is what they emphasize now. You know, it's great learning from their team. I mean, if the visible thinking people, the visible learning people can learn in front of everybody else, we can all do the same. They worked out that you have to emphasize that the 
point of visible learning is to do visible learning. You have to measure effect size. What you can't do is go to the, you know, the, the primer, the, the short notes and say, oh, John Hattie found that these are the five most effective things to do. So we're going to do them in our classroom. I mean, there's good reason why those, those five are up the top. It could well yep. be that, that, that people are more experienced at doing those things, that, that as a result, they have greater expertise in it. And, it, it like, and as you said, it decontextualizes it. Like, there's all sorts of reasons there. But of course, we that's jump right. to that thing straight away that says, uh-huh, see, told you, direct instruction. Let's do a bucket load of that and bore the kids to death. And then <laughs> tell them, go out into the world and be free. And by the way, we're not going to give you a job and we're not going to give you security. We're not going to give you stability and you need to be performing at your best and blah, 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 blah. And meanwhile, we've just been doing more of the same. So that's That's my little little rant for the day (laughs) saying, here are all your case studies. How do we help educators to learn from this? Yeah, well, there are a couple of things. This narrative that... For expert knowledge, you first need to be drilled down. You need to drill down to the basics. Makes a lot of sense if what you're, if the world you live in is the world of schooling. It falls to the ground if the world you live in is a world of learning. Imagine that we try to ha- to teach kids to talk by teaching them vocabulary and grammar. They would never talk. The miracle of learning occurs because the person who is learning and the person who is teaching, and there's no teaching actually in powerful learning. There's someone who models, who shows, but doesn't teach. Someone who shows. The miracle of the the kids learning to speak comes from the fact that the parent speaks to the kid and listens to the kid as if they were already full-on talkers. Even when they're mumbling, you respond to the mumbling and engaging conversation with the children mumbling. And that's how they learn, because they feel treated from the very beginning as full-on capable of learning this very complex thing that is language, right? Mm, mm. What happens with the basics in language? I mean, we have phenomenal evidence that you can take many years of language classes, all the basics, and suck at communicating, right? I mean, it is uh, how many people pass French in, uh, in, in, you know, here in Canada or in, in Mexico? How many people pass English? And they cannot hold a 20-second conversation in the language, right? Exactly. You know, to, to, to the point, one of the power, part of the powerful, you know, part of the um, beauty of examples like the Learning Community Project and Escuela Nueva and activity-based learning is that they have created a system, a model, where adults see and treat kids as full-on learners from day one. They're not expecting a perfect thing at the beginning. Just like when you are a mom, you know, when you have a kid, a one-year-old, you don't expect that he will do the most eloquent sentence, right? More grammatically correct sentence. But you know that they have a sense that speaking is what it looks like, and they will try it. So, of course, the initial kind of versions of what the students produce and are able to articulate won't be amazing. But you, you, you use that as your starting point and refine it over time. Again, this idea of you have to drill to the, with the basics and then you, you have the luxury of do the expert knowledge, it, it worked in the game of schooling. 
it won't work in the game of learning. Real, you know, problem-based learning, all these kind of things should not be seen, and we should not see them as a luxury, but as a necessity. As, as we have been saying before, we are at the, at the edge, I didn't say it this way, but with the human project at stake, we are at the edge of the precipice. I mean, depression, anxiety, suicidal trends, suicidal trends amongst youth, uh, you know, hopelessness, that's, that's all over the place now. It's not tolerable anymore. And I think the kids know it. <laughs> the kids know that the world is falling apart and they need to take a part and they want to take a part in changing it. And we cannot wait till they graduate from school for them to start doing that. 12 years is already, we don't have a world if we keep running schools this way after the, after the kids who are entering first well, grade now. And, and, in, and, and in the lives of the individual students, we don't have, we've we, we, we failed. If we, if we don't, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here and thinking, if we don't connect kids to something that looks like something beyond themselves, which eventually becomes purpose. So I think purpose is, is strongest when we work with students who are sort of 16, 17, 18. And before that, it's probably about experience and about connection and about community. And, the, and you know, that's, that's students in that middle years. And then, and then for students in that, in, you know, in primary years, it's, it's a combination of exploration and encounter when they're younger. And, it's, and then it's probably something around mastery and family and accomplishment and, and so on. So there's, you know, there's a taxonomy that we need to focus on that leads towards that notion of purpose. But if, we sit there, but if we sit there and we go, if we disconnect you from a sense of purpose, then until you've demonstrated that you've earned a sense of purpose, how will you ever find that sense of purpose? You know, da, you know Dan Pink in, in his work, of course, you know, summarising all the work of the Kahnemans and people like that, was he teaches mastery, autonomy and purpose. That's right. And that's not just, that's right. for, the, that's not just for the grown-ups, that's for the kids yep. as well. If we, if we don't do that, it's, it's not going to work. Let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners about the important work of Open Parachute for Wellness in Schools. You know your students are struggling with their mental health, but you're not a trained therapist. Open Parachute can help you. Learn more at openparachute.com.au. Man, tell me some more about some of the, the case studies. We were we were in Tamil Nadu and I interrupted you with my rant. Yeah. Yeah, can no, well, well, two examples, things. Right? Uh, the, the one thing that, 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 that Dan Pink missed in, in the book Drive was connectedness. And that was uh, actually from the, you know, you know, the original research that he drives, uh, uh, derives it from, uh, talks about connectedness and as another driver of intrinsic motivation. But yeah, the thing is, by the time, if you break things down into, uh, this is scientific management at its best. The idea that you, the best way to organize human activity and learning in particular is you break it down into simple routine, repetitive tasks. You create external incentives to secure um, adequate execution. Uh, and you know, in this theory that you know, you do this and then you go into purpose. The problem is when you do that, you're not only preparing, you're not only kind of setting the blocks for what's coming, you, you're mitigating purpose, you're killing it. You're killing creativity. Uh, there is, I mean, the thing is the decline in kids engagement with school is, is very well documented. By the time they reach grade eight or nine, the, engage, the, the excitement of school is just 
over the floor, right? And that's, and that's, floor. And that's global, isn't it? That's irrelevant yeah, of resource, it that's irrelevant over. of socioeconomics, of language, yeah. of culture, all over the world. Yeah. That's right, all over. And again, we have been saying boredom is toxic. It's bad for your well-being. Uh, it's like being subject to stress chronically. Now, the thing is, let, let me go back to the idea of uh, disadvantage, of thinking about uh, what you call composite schools, composite schools and what we call multi-grade schools as a disadvantage. Part of the beauty of the Learning Community Project is called Anoe Activity-Based Learning at Community Schools in Egypt. That's another very beautiful example, is that they turn what's called disadvantage into opportunity. You are a disadvantage if what you are trying to do is to catch up to the old game. If you try to catch up to the old game of schooling, a multi-grade school will be seen as deficient, will be seen as disadvantaged. But you're at a tremendous advantage if what you want to build is a game of learning. There are many reasons for this, but if you start to think about the students as teachers, so that it's not only the teacher's responsibility to support the students one-on-one, one-on-one, but that kids start to support each other, especially in the their areas of expertise, whatever it is that they're good at. I mean, older kids helping other kids to, to read, all those kind of things. Then having kids from different ages is phenomenal. It's a huge advantage, right? Uh, in very remote communities, you, I mean, the thing is when you have only one or two teachers dealing with the whole school, then you have more flexibility of time. I mean, it's much easier to, to organize your time when you, you're only two teachers in school. And then, so you can say, okay, so way more extended periods of time for kids to engage in projects of their interest, right? If you're in a very far off remote community, do you have less of a supervisor looking over your shoulder to make sure you're doing, you know, you're on page such at such day. So there's, lo there's less supervision, let's, there's less oversight. And that can work for good or for bad, but when you have a good idea for learning, it can be phenomenal. It's a yeah, great look, advantage. I, I, I want to pick up on that because I think there's another piece that's involved with that. In those communities, particularly when you're in, in impoverished areas where yeah. families yeah. are subsistence workers, they're out in yeah. the fields, they're working really, really hard, they're not particularly connected to school on an ongoing basis. So the yeah. teacher, if they want to do something innovative, not only do they not have the supervisor on their case, they don't have the parents. If you go to other parts of the world where parents are more connected to education, every teacher you meet can tell you a story of being bullied and brutalised by a pushy parent. Yeah. But let's take that notion of composite classes yeah. or vertical, vertically structured or... Multi-age or, or cross-age, cross-age. Yeah. If you put a cross-age structure into a pastoral care system, so if you have a vertically structured form group or house group or so on, parents who've had that in their education will expect it yeah. and they will see all the benefit from it. If you then say, so what would happen if we did that in the English class? They go, oh, my goodness, no, 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 because they never experienced an English class like that themselves. Yeah. What will happen is the teacher will try and explain what they're doing. Most parents will probably go along with it. Some parents yep. will find it difficult. They and will then they, they will reject it. And, and not only yep. that, then some of them will go on a mission and the Facebook campaign and the, the this, the that, the other, the complaint yep. to the principal, all of that sort of stuff. Yep. And that process yep. teaches the teacher, don't stick your head up. Don't try yep. new stuff. Don't do different stuff. 
because yeah. that this is what happens. How do we help schools engage parents in that dialogue that you said was so important about the learning yeah. Yeah. to help them to recognize yeah. the value yeah. of innovation? Yeah. Now, let me, let me start by saying, in rural communities, you see very similar expectations from parents. Mm. So the first complaints when we started working this way with, the, with, with kids were, you know, where are the exams? Where are the grade reports? All these kind of things, because that's what they have uh, experienced as the access to privilege, right? To more opportunity, all those kind of things. So there was resistance from parents. It's not that kind of rural communities are this idyllic place where, you know, no, there was also resistance from parents. And what have, what has, I mean, what has changed the minds and the hearts of the parents? To see the light in the eyes of their children. I mean, that, that's it, that's it. We have hundreds, thousands of stories of parents who come. Part of what the Learning Community Project did was to create a space for public demonstration of mastery, where kids will demonstrate what they were learning and how. These are kids who are known to be very quiet, very submissive, just very, very shy. Even in their homes, they don't speak. We saw so many parents coming down to tears to see their children, sorry, I'm feeling a, bit, a little bit moved here. No, no, please to, go to, <laughs> to see their children speaking in public with confidence, with joy, uh, to start seeing them debate with them at home, right? Coming to, coming to home, talking about what they were learning in school. It's, it's similar to what Richard Elmore, we talked about the experience mm. of Richard Elmore, Mike Cruz, mm. that it was an experience that moved him to tears. Again, it's easier for those who oppose change to organize around it because they, they know what's at stake for them. They know what they may lose. And the way to deal with that is to start bringing the benefits of the change mm. more, more closer to their experience. So that's that's part of it. That that's yeah, part of yeah. it. Now the I, other I, part is, yeah, the other part is more political. I mean, the thing is, I know there are powerful parents around there that can organize to bully a teacher to try to get a teacher fi fired, all those kind of things. And I think that's where the tactics part of the social movement can be woven in or or looked at more intentionally here. There are some really nice tools to start to develop tactic. So where are your supporters? Where are your opponents? What are the resources that, that each group has? And how do you play with those so that you can mitigate opposition and increase support? Teachers cannot do this on their own. No, and, and It cannot and of course, be a solitary and, thing. And if we think of the role of leaders in schools, mm -hmm. and, and thank you for your emotion, by the way. I just think I was going to just jump in there and say there's another piece in this which is that we actually need to let the emotion and the feeling into this. Yes, we otherwise, do. Otherwise, we, otherwise do. we dehumanise. It's, it's ridiculous. Right. You know, and That's and right. we, we privilege the cognitive over the effective too much. One of the things I think, I, I have a theory about leaders in education is that leaders in education are outliers. They have skills that other people in schools don't have. They have skill sets and inclinations that others don't yeah. have. Most yeah. people who work in schools are really good or very, very good at getting into a classroom and working with kids. Yep. They're not so good on the whole at working with adults. They're okay <laughs> at it, but you know, given the chance, they'll spend all their time working with the kids. Yeah. And that's 
Fantastic. I think the outlier, and, and, and they tend not to build great vision for education because their vision is the lives of every kid in front of them. Yep. So if you talk to them, quite often they won't have a model for their practice. Their model for their practice is the connection with every child that they've got, yep. and it can get quite yep. diffuse. Um, yeah. And you know, the most powerful question you can always ask those teachers is, "What is your purpose?" And the reason why That's it's right. powerful, the reason why it's powerful, is because they don't spend time thinking about it because they're so involved in the lives of their kids. And, and that for That's me right. is inspiration. The leaders That's of schools right. are the people who can step back from that and go, "Okay, how can I optimize?" every one of those learning spaces and how can I connect my community? They're the politicians. That's you know, right. I, sometimes That's think right. that, I sometimes think that the principal of the school has the same skill set and competencies as the mayor of the town. You know, yeah. it's- Yeah, no, no, that's right. That's right. You know, you can, you can always tell a principal because principals live off gossip and social information. They want to that's know right. who's connected to who and who's doing this. And, and they're very, very reluctant to overcommit themselves until they've tested the political pulse and so on, which that's is, of right. course, exactly what they need. So that's there's right. this relationship between the majority who work with the kids and then yep. that small number who end up with different jobs who, who, whose job it is to glue the whole community together and connect the adults with the kids and, yeah. and, and, and try and help all of this going forward. If you don't have yeah. leaders who lean into the future, if you have leaders who believe that their job is their own status or to preserve the status quo or whatever, yeah. then it, it's really hard to make it work, isn't it? It is. It is good leadership. And in particular, when it comes to leadership in social movements, it's about mobilizing three things, the head, the hearts and the hands of the people yes. you work with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with powerful experiences of powerful learning, you mobilize the heart. And that's very important. You can do it also through public narrative, which is a phenomenal exercise that the most powerful leaders do. Create a public narrative, a story of self, a story of us, a story of now that connects uh, you know, reveals who you are to your people, but also connects them to a purpose and to a sense of urgency to do something together. Um, I will. I won't delve into this too much. The other part is the mind, the heart, the 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 head. We need to engage the head as well. And there are two important ways in which I think we can do it. First is if we accumulate powerful evidence that helps parents or those who may oppose this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, more learning-oriented work, to see, to let the contradiction of schooling, just to hit them in the face. Uh, there is, uh, for example, an, an experiment that was conducted in a boarding school in uh, New Jersey, uh, boarding elite school, you know, all the kids go to Ivy Leagues or a big proportion of them go to Ivy Leagues. And the experiment was very simple. It was giving students the final test in science. Uh, they did it for a couple of years with different groups, but the final test in science and the experiment was giving them, giving them the same test three months after. Same test, only a little bit more simplified, easier, you know, removing low level details, but the same test to the same students three months, three months later, of course, without telling them that they're gonna take the exam again. Okay, so, and the, the experiment was, let's see how they're doing. The average grade, the time they, they took the, the exam for real, so to speak, at the end of the semester, the average grade was a B plus. 
in, in this kind of letter letter system a b c d e f is is failed right yep yep, yep. a is the highest etc b plus is more than b etc but the average grade was b plus pretty reasonable i think that that one would expect that from almost any class in in in, in the world what do you think was was the average grade three months after it's the same kids it's a simpler exam it's the same exam only simpler it's the same kids same content only three months after oh, i'm gonna guess it's lower <laughs> good you're, you're getting there yeah oh yeah i'm gonna say maybe a, a b minus or a c plus yeah it was f f wow failed not a single student not a single student could demonstrate the mastery the supposed mastery that they demonstrated three months earlier I, and, it's and shocking I, I, and I'm, guess, I'm guessing that's because they crammed for the exam. They learned the stuff the first time. They performed that's to it. a normal standard, then threw it away and said, what's next? That's it. That's how I got the best grades in my class. I mean, I was lucky. I never had to take the exam and I, uh, even a week later. I would have failed it. I know. I did well because I had very good short-term memory. I could regurgitate huge entire mate, chapters mate, of I, did, I did i did i did i did um i had a, a long-standing feud with my mathematics teachers and my science teachers so i didn't take maths and science in my final yeah. years and i did um latin and greek instead yeah because you know why not and i could get the marks simply by memorizing huge chunks of translation that's right that was it that's right that's but, right. But, but then, then when I had to come and teach Latin a few years later, I knew nothing. I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten everything. And that's you know, a, I, was, right. I, was, I was I was talking to someone last night who I mentioned I was a history and Latin teacher. And of course, the second you say I was a Latin teacher, they throw some Latin at you and go, "What do you think of that?" And I go, "Ah, uh, <laughs> sorry, forgotten." That's right. <laughs> that's right. The thing is, you know, I think every evidence like that can just wake us up. You know, just yes. can help us see the nonsense that we have bought into run a few surveys in your with your students and see you know ask them do you feel how how true is this i feel smart in the classroom you know <laughs> i feel like i'm being supported to learn uh, to, to to get to learn what i want yeah. to learn yeah. all those kind of things and show that evidence yeah. engage the head engage the heart both things we need to do both things yeah. the other part of the work and this is this uh, this is probably a good closing i i'm i'm, I'm aware of the time but um is I, I wanted to bring to the attention of our listeners what strategies from the perspective of social movements this is a definition beautiful definition by marshall gans one of my idols in the field of social movements and community organizing uh strategy is how do you turn what you have into what you need to get what you want. That's a great, it's a great thought, isn't it? Fabulous. <laughs> I think it's a lovely definition. How you turn what you have into what you need to get what you want. That's it. So it's not about resources. It's not about more time. It's not about more money. It's about resourcefulness. It's about how do you make use of your available resources and turn them into the assets you need to obtain what you want. That's how social movements operate. I mean, the thing is, social movements are usually a bunch of folks with very little formal power. <laughs> and what they do is to find the resources in their power that collectively make them more powerful and give them a chance, fighting chance against the giants they decide to, to confront. 
that's what David did when he uh, confronted the Goliath. He built good strategy. What he did, you know, after try, after accepting the defeat with Goliath, he he tries on the armor. He realizes that it's too heavy for him, that he won't be able to fight. He takes it off, and in desperation, he looks around and finds three pebbles in the in the creek. And that's where God's message comes to him, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. I have the sling, I have this the stones, and I have very good aim. Here is my game change, right? This is the this is the way I'm changing it's the game. game. It's not about it's not about winning the old game. It's about changing the game. And that's what David does. He turns what he has, a few stones, a sling, his good aim, his indignation for the for the kind of affront that Goliath is presenting to the people of Israel as what he needs, which is a deadly weapon, right? To get what he wants, which is defeating Goliath. That's what strategy is about. So it's not about expecting for your boss to get their act together. It's not about expecting for the ministry to finally realize that they're doing everything wrong. It is about know what you want, place your heart there, and then use anything you have around you that you can leverage. Let me just put it this way. Ivan Illich, a phenomenal thinker of the 70s, uh, the author of Deschooling Society. Again, this book just turned 50 years old last year. Ivan Illich said the single resource that's equally distributed amongst us human beings, the single resource that's equally distributed amongst human beings is our capacity to act. That is, it's not money, it's not wealth, is not necessarily kind of brain, it is our capacity to act. Mm. And that's available to everyone. And that's usually what social movements leverage to create phenomenal change. And that's what game changers do, don't they? They don't wait for that's permission. Right. They step forward, right. they step up. There's a degree of bravery around it and you have to be willing to be a pioneer along the way. But it's something that actually any one of us can do. We just have to make that decision we've got to connect our purpose to our people in place it's got to come out in our practice Santiago um, thank you so much for the opportunity for this conversation I've just I've really really enjoyed getting to know you Uh, I've enjoyed your emotion and your passion and your knowledge and how erudite you are and your ability to take all of the elements of learning as a practice of freedom and educational change as a social movement and learning from the global south about radical innovation and actually it turns out it's not so radical after all the answer is actually to find the ways in which we can be more fully human you, you are such a glorious human santiago thank you <laughs> thank you very much let me just say very briefly it is radical radical is going to the root of things going to the root of the problem and solving it that's what radical means it has we have come to give it a different connotation but it is radical, and I'm not afraid of calling it radical. What the idea is to go to the heart of the issue, which is our human project. I have a feeling you and I might have another chat another time because um, I've enjoyed this one so much and I learned so much. Thank you very much on behalf of all of our listeners. It's been a privilege getting to know you. Travel safely, wear a mask, stay out of the cold, and God bless. Will do. Pleasure to, to connect with you, Phil. Thank you to the audience for listening. Looking forward to connecting in the future. Let's see what we can do to change the game of schooling. Let's go. 
Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.